This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to Sunday Chops. Hannah here. As promised, this is the full interview that I conducted when we were up at the Edinburgh Fringe. I made that hard work saying that. Up at the Edinburgh Fringe. When I spoke to theatre maker Annie Saunders about her latest show, Our Country. Now, if you are in Edinburgh and listening to this before 515 you will still be able to catch the last performance of that. But as Annie mentions, the good news is they're taking it on an international tour. So you will be able to watch it, possibly wherever it is that you're listening to this. Hooray! Annie and I had a really interesting conversation about siblings, about the myth of Antigone, about the myth of the Wild West, about how we raise our daughters compared to how we raise our sons. I say our advisedly because I have neither, but you get what I mean. Um, I'm going to stop talking about it and you should just listen to it because it was great. But in the meanwhile, while I have you, I just wanted to say next week on Wednesday, we will be releasing a gig cast, which will be the recording of an event we held recently at the Waterside in Sale, where our guests were Sherry Lee Houston, Sean Gibson and Jenny McAlpine. That was hosted by Sarah Millican and myself. So look out for that. Also coming next Sunday will be an interview that Mick and Jen did with the brilliant June Sarpong. So lots to look forward to. If you want to find out what gigs we're doing soon, go to Sarah's website, sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. And you'll find details of events in London, Cambridge and Cheltenham, which are coming up before Christmas. And don't forget, life will be a lot easier for you to listen to us if you press the subscribe button and a lot easier for us. Anyway, enjoy the rest of your Sunday and speak soon. I'm here in Summerhall with Annie Saunders, theatre maker and co-creator of a piece of theatre I've just seen called Our Country, which I enjoyed very much. I'm so glad. That said, I'm not entirely sure how I would go about describing it, so it's probably best to give it to you if you could give a description of what Our Country is. Our Country is a piece of devised theatre that I made with Becca Wolf and with my company, Wilderness, who largely makes site-based immersive performance. But this is a proscenium touring show where um, we build the set around the audience at a certain moment in the piece. So it has, I hope, that quality of participatory, semi-interactive immersive performance in a proscenium setting. And it's a story about a lot of things. It's a story about me and my brother. It's a story about America and sort of what we are experiencing now as a bit of a primal time in America. It draws a parallel between 
sibling relationships in childhood uh, and our sibling as the person who knows us at our most primal violent self and looks at how we are experiencing a violent primal time in America at the moment. It also looks at the Wild West uh, and other origin stories. So we use the story of Antigone and Greek tragedy to look at the beginning of democracy. We use the Wild West and the romanticism around uh, Western movies to look at origin stories in America. And then we look at sibling relationships as a way into childhood and the systems that we create in childhood. It's really interesting, I have to say. I wrote down a list of things that I could talk to you about in the time we have. Great. Based on that entirely, which is marijuana, gun control, younger brothers, westerns, and how people grow up so different when they come from the same family. They're about my five favourite things to talk about, if I'm going to be honest. Brilliant. It, but it is a very personal story for you, isn't it? Mm. A lot of it is based on a phone call between your brother and yourself. But then you have someone playing your brother on mm. stage. So perhaps you could tell people what the situation is about your brother. He has a marijuana farm in Northern California. Uh, he is a great interlocutor, as you <laughs> experience. Yeah. Um, but he's also on felony probation, so he can't leave uh, he reminds, the state. He reminds me a lot of a lot of people I know, mm. I have to say. Mm. Um, I have a younger brother. He's not like that. But, but your relationship with him, I think you, you make a really interesting point in it. It's that... Your mother told you you have to take care of him no matter what. And that's something that's very much driven into me. My brother's nine years younger than me, so there's mm. a slightly bigger gap between you and your brother. But I was told that constantly as a child. And yet that gets to a point where you have to let that go in the same way that parents have to let that go. But mm. it is quite hard with siblings. Mm. Mm. So how do you feel with your brother? How has that separation, or have you achieved that, do you think, at all with your brother? Definitely in the process of making the show, our relationship has changed, and I think I accept him more as an adult for who he is, you know, as opposed to this kind of, like, transposition of seeing him as a, a child always and that I'm responsible for him but another thing that became really clear in the making of the work which we talk about at the end of the show is this feeling of having a sibling as the person that is theoretically gonna show up for you when things happen you know like when your parents are ill or they die or when they die and this, you know, or just when life happens, like a sibling is supposed to be that person. So when you have a sibling that because of a dangerous lifestyle, you know, easily could be incarcerated or predecease me, that it's more than just fix your life because I'm here to tell you what to do because I'm older. It's more, it's like... I need you to be around, you know, what will happen to me if you are not there? You have to fix your life because yeah. I need you to show up. The theme of the West is absolutely fascinating. I have to say, I love a Western. You were just actually, was there a Ken Burns, the West quote in your, did yeah, I hear that? Yeah, we use, um, the guy is a historian called Richard White yeah. and he says, which, you know, this is a very interesting quote for our piece, especially because it does deal, it doesn't explicitly deal, but it does deal with whiteness in America and intersectionality. This guy in the, in Ken Burns documentary, the West says, um, American stories are Western stories. American heroes are Western heroes. When we imagine the possibility of the future is always in the West. Even when we say something has been lost, what's lost is always in the West. 
it's in a section of our show where we talk about racism and you know, that quote also is not about all Americans. You know, the guy says like American heroes are Western heroes. Americans imagine themselves as cowboys on the frontier. And it's like some Americans, white Americans, you know, is really the reality of that. And really, and also like Western, I don't know, I actually don't really know what people feel on the East coast or in the South about like the history their historical heroes. There's another. We've we've actually been rewatching that documentary during uh, it, during the festival. It's great as a team building exercise. <laughs> and we uh, recently there was a, a section where another expert says, you know, we look back on the West with a mixture of pride and shame. So we look, we see our heroes, and we aspire to them, and we also are sort of mortified at their behavior, which I think is so similar to how we look at childhood, how we look at who we were as children, how we want to separate from who we were as children, how the sibling represents like a specter of who we were. You know, we could forget our violent past. If we didn't have a sibling, we want to go around and be like, I'm this sophisticated grown up person. And then we have a sibling and the sibling is like, you threw me down the stairs for a bag of jelly beans. Like that was you, you know? And I think that's, true in America now as well. I think a lot of the things that we don't face about ourselves as Americans are brought up by these specters of the past. Yeah, but because, because I mean, it's, it's a story of great sort of triumph and achievement, isn't it? But it's, there's, a, there's a human cost to mm-hmm. it. I think the only thing you can say about now is perhaps the, the social media or things like that. At least the human cost is being talked about. Because it's interesting, there's a point at which you say, what's the worst that could happen? And that does seem to be a kind of question for America in general at the moment. And mm. it's a bit, I don't expect you to have an answer, but what do you think is the worst going to happen? Where do you think we're going? Or where do you think America is going at the moment? I think it might be the end, frankly. Like, I think this might be the sort of fall of the Western um, empire of America as a, as a world power. And I think that will be hard for for many of us and maybe hard for the world we'll see we'll see what happens it's a, it's a very like you know the sort of destruction and exhaustion of power is a very creative moment that's what that monologue is is about you know and that monologue draws from Ennui's antigone and also from we were 8 years in power by tanahasi coates um, who both talk about, so this is a version of Antigone, um, kind of existential version of Antigone that was written, I believe, in the 1940s, early 50s, maybe. And there's a monologue where the, the chorus narrator says, tragedy is restful. In tragedy, everything is laid out before you. You don't have to try. You don't have to hope. You can just do what you're supposed to do. And because of that, it's, it's, um, argument is elevated, which I think is something that's really interesting for our piece and for my relationship with my brother, where we argue a lot as a way of connecting basically. So there's that piece in the monologue about, you know, you could relax if it's a tragedy, you know, how everything's going to play out. And it's really echoed in this recent publication by Ta-Nehisi Coast, where he says, um, tragedy, the story is of America is a tragedy and we can use that to focus you know, maybe it's not a Western. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Now, talking of Antigone, you, you, another question you pose is, was it Antigone's job to sort out that mess mm. in the first place? Mm. Which revisits that idea that women are kind of expected just to 
subjugate their needs to the needs of the, the, the men around them, which mm. is a, that's a question facing America at the moment as well, isn't it? The place of women. Mm. How positive do you feel about that? I think it's interesting also to echo something you were saying before about um, sibling brothers and sisters. But there's a beautiful essay by Rebecca Solnit where she talks about how I would have made a great son. My mother is so disappointed in yeah. me as a daughter because I don't look after things and I don't come to visit and I don't sort things out. But she's so proud of my brothers who are just living their own lives yeah. and being ambitious. And she would have been so proud of me if I were a son. I think my parents would both consider themselves very feminist people, but we're all subject to these social kind of traditions, I guess. Yeah. And I also think it comes from outside the family too, you know, this for sure, like from society. And I think, I hope there's a trend towards more awareness of, of what it takes to disrupt gender roles in America at the moment. But I think it's a it's a struggle, you know? I mean, it's like what we say at the end of the show. It's like there's a moment of extreme juxtaposition where there's one version of me saying, I have a profound emotional need for connection to this other person, and I fear for their safety, and I don't want to be alone, basically. And on the other hand, I'm saying can't you just imagine if she just left the body there and she left, you know, and she just was Gregory Peck basically. And I think that is the struggle. You know, we want personal freedom and we deeply need connection to others. And that's kind of how the piece ends. You know, you actually do reveal a lot of personal information in this. How does it feel to be putting your life out there in that way? It's great. I mean, we, you know, I make live performance because I want to connect with other people. You know, I, I believe in the power of live events that occur in real time as a way of activating social change, really. I, I believe that people crave connection and, um, and spaces where spontaneous intimacy can occur which are fewer and fewer, I think, in our increasingly digitally mediated life. So that's the reason that I make live performance. So to bring my story in a very specific setting, you know, it's about California. It's about a very specific moment in California. It's about the marijuana industry, which is very much, you know, it's a very, very local story. And then even inside of that, it's about my family. And then inside of that, it's about me and my brother and about me. Um, but it has these parallels that are very strong f- for me when I look at this story of Antigone and this brother that, you know, does he or does he not need rescuing or saving? Is it her job? And then when that she gets locked up and isolated from her community and that nobody will say anything to speak out to help her and that the whole fabric of the story really boils down to what do you do when you're in a situation where what you believe is right and what the law says is right are not aligned and they are in fact opposite. And we face that in many, many ways in our culture now, you know, the situation with the family separation at the border. These are things that, these are things that are in the newspaper every day about what do we do when what's right and what's legal are opposed. And I think for many of us, 
luxuriously. For me, certainly, I've lived most of my life with what I believe to be morally right and what is said in the law to be relatively aligned. You know, I mean, I think marriage equality was like a big civil rights issue of my generation. We sorted that out, basically, you know. But that's really the only example that I can think of. Whereas my brother, the idea that what he thinks is the right way to live would be opposed to a legal or um, socially acceptable way of living is no surprise to him at all. It's never been, those two things have never been aligned, you know? So it's like, what's the shock that you don't, now everybody's all up in arms because they don't agree with the system and the system doesn't serve them. Like we've been living like this, Um, which is what we say in the beginning of the show. You know, it's not just about, it's not like these people you can just say, oh, well, what you do is legal now. You might as well be farming tomatoes. These are people who don't use the system. They don't pay taxes. They don't use the police. They don't, they're not inside of the system at all. So that means that there's violence as a problem solving tool, you know, and many, many other things that we, that we touch on in the show. And then the parallel in my story of having been put away, like being, you know, a crazy girl who gets locked up, which is actually a quote from the um, Seven Against Thebes, the Seamus Haney translation. They talk about Haney, talks about um, Antigone as like, this is a crazy girl that gets locked up. And I think that was also a cultural phenomenon in my community in the 90s, kind of just after Just Say No and the War on Drugs and things like that. And there was this moment where in a certain economic bracket and social kind of set, I guess you could say, there, you know, we, we reference in the show, this conversation that I had with my dad about I, where I asked him, like, do you think this was a trend in the nineties? Because I know a lot of kids that were institutionalized, like, and really for no reason. I mean, really like not for no reason, but for like a friend of another friend of mine who has this very similar story to me said, um, no question. We were wild kids and we were in danger. You know, there's no doubt that we were like cutting school and running around and getting arrested and, you know, drinking and getting high and being in the park at night and whatever, you know? Um, so there's no doubt that we were living dangerously and that we were wild, but it did seem like a moment, cultural moment where, um, a lot of kids were institutionalized in these private kind of treatment centers for a sort of undiagnosed reason, you know, just like reckless behavior. And yeah, those are in, in certain States in the West you can basically hand over custody of guardianship of your child to a corporation. So it doesn't have to be a person. (laughs) So that means like in California, for example, you can't hold a minor for I think more than 48 hours without charging them with a crime. In some other states, you can, like I say in the show, you don't have to have underage consent for these treatment programs which can be for, yeah, for sort of undiagnosed um, ailments or whatever. But I'm also not an expert on this. You know, I have my story. Like I said, all these institutions have been closed. I haven't been able to obtain any records from any of them. 
So I'm really careful to say, like, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, including the law. Everything in the show is either based on my experience or based on what we could find out on the internet about, you know, the system. But that's, that's actually kind of the point of the show, is, is anecdotal experience often contradicts the facts that you are, you are presenting. Absolutely, society. absolutely. We really like to talk in the show about, there was a woman who consulted on our project, um, Victoria Reuter, who is a, an ancient Greek narratologist. Um, and she works specifically on Antigone and on necropolitics, which is treatment of the dead in various cultures. And she said some amazing things in the dramaturgy that we did with her. One was like the mark of a civilization is whether or not they bury their dead. Like, so a funeral is actually like a mark that we place in history between like a barbaric culture and a civilized culture. She also talks about the point at which people stop calling themselves historians and start calling themselves narratologists because we said like, so Antigone was that a real person? And she said, well, you know, was there a Sphinx? Like ask yourself, you know, and she just said, we don't ask those questions at a certain point in history. We don't ask anymore whether it really happened. We just study the story. That's why we call ourselves narratologists and lawyers are the same. You know, like I mentioned in the show that both of my parents are criminal defense attorneys and they talk all the time about like, you never ask somebody if they really did it or not is not relevant to the story. You just ask them what happened. You know, they all say I'm innocent. I'm innocent. It's totally irrelevant. You just ask for the story and then you tell the best story you possibly can. And so, you know, the law is like that. Ancient Greek history, mythology, narratology is like that. Childhood is like that. You know, who yeah. knows? If both of the people were children, who knows what happened? You are quite often asked the question, but hey, isn't marijuana legal now? And to be honest, over here, we quite often, I say we, I quite often, you know, look at the progress that's been made, and I do consider it progress with the law, with medical marijuana, and question why we're not doing it here. Mm. But clearly, anecdotal evidence does suggest it's not as straightforward as perhaps it should be, much like the idea that everybody, or a lot of people, were coming from a good place when they thought prohibition should happen, Mm. and then almost immediately all hell broke loose. Mm. Do you consider it progress, what's happening with the law, with marijuana in America? Well, what's happening at the moment, and I am no expert. I mean, I I know very little about the situation, to be honest. We have this kind of explicatory monologue from the phone call where my brother says, okay, you know, this is what happened in 1996. We had medical marijuana and this is, this is what happened. And now we're in this situation. And so he's kind of the resident expert for sure. I guess, do I consider it progress? I consider it change. Certainly. I don't know. At the moment, we're in we're in a gray moment where we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, in a very small nutshell, it was illegal. Then the voters passed um, a, a a proposition that said that it was okay for medical use and then what you could have for medical use in terms of quantities and what you could do for medical use in terms of growing and stuff varied by county. And also medical marijuana was a defense in court. So if you had a medical marijuana card, you could get arrested and they could take, you know, your money, your pot, whatever. And then you would have a way to defend yourself, but it's not like you could show that card to the cop and say, 
I have this and you can't take my money. And they're not giving your money back. You know, there's a part in the show where my brother says like, oh, insufficient evidence charges dropped. Here's your money back. And he doesn't mean legal fees. He means here's your money back that we seized from you because these people don't use banks. There's billions of dollars moving in the economy um, in cash in California. And when all that money has to go into the bank, which, you know, will it? Like, why would it? Just because now legal means that you can apply for a commercial grow license if you want, or you can be unlicensed. And now, so we've had that medical marijuana kind of very gray area. And also it's illegal in the United States. That's the other thing. Federally, it's illegal. In the United States of America, marijuana is not a legal substance. And then in some states, it is legal. But if the federal government wants to take you down, you still are in the United States, even though you're in California, and they can. They can override the local government and take you to federal court and federal prison. Yeah, If they decide they want to make an example of you, or for some reason they find that you're moving it across state lines, for example, then they can supersede the state government um, and arrest you on federal grounds and federal charges. Um, So that's why it's been this legal gray area. It's sort of legal. That's what we say in the show, right? It's semi-legal, which is not a thing, you know, but it also is. And now in November, this past November, we passed another proposition that legalized recreational use and that seems to be very similar to prohibition in the sense that it was pushed through with some amendments or bullet points inside of it that said that you know it was going to have antitrust protection it was going to protect small farmers it was going to maintain that individuals wouldn't or corporations wouldn't be able to own the means of production fabrication and distribution And we passed that law, the voters, and then little by little, those protections are being undone. So they knew they couldn't get the, this is what my brother says in the show, is that they knew they couldn't get the law through without the support of the growing community. And so they wrote it in such a way that people voted for it. And now in the actual drafting of the regulation, all of those protections are going away. So in some ways, I don't think it's progress in the sense that the quality of life of people who have sustained the marijuana industry in California is probably going, is already diminishing as opposed to increasing, you know, in wealth and prosperity. It's kind of, as we all suspected, it might be taken over by well, it's interesting because people, one of the arguments is people will say, oh, well, the government can get the tax. And you're like, there's people already don't pay tax on money they earn legally. They're alone trying to get money on, on things like marijuana too. Mm. What's next for you, Annie? Um, we're going to tour this show. So we're with Aurora Nova, who are a great touring organization presenting here at the Fringe. Also Boat Rocker, uh, which is an American touring organization. We're going to tour with them. So you're touring um, in the UK? We're touring worldwide Excellent. in 2019, 2020. Um, so we're just firming up all of those presentations now. But yeah, we're hoping to tour the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the US. So that's really exciting, especially for me, because I make largely site-specific work um, in disused buildings that are going to be demolished. So this is one of the only things I've made that's a really tourable 
piece of work for traditional theater spaces, yeah. uh, which is why we wanted to bring it to Summer Hall and, and showcase it here as a, as a piece of touring work. I have another project called Up in Arms, which is a two-person experience. Um, it's for two women at a time, a white woman and a black woman who are friends. And we take their photograph and talk to them about intersectionality um, and racism and feminism and, and female friendship. Um, so that's a live art and social practice project that's coming up this year and next year as well. And yeah, a few other few other projects in the pipeline. How do people find out more? They can find out more at our website, which is thisisthewilderness.com. Um, so that's the website for my company. They can also write to us at hello at thisisthewilderness.com. And then we're on all sorts of so social media. Facebook and Instagram. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks. Standard issue for all women.